I'm pleased to introduce tonight's moderator, William L. Fox. <clears throat> Mr. Fox is director of the Center for Arts and Environment at the Nevada Museum of Art in Reno. He is author of 11 books on cognition and landscape, including In the Desert of Desire, Las Vegas and the Culture of Spectacle, and Making Time, Essays on the Nature of Los Angeles. Mr. Fox is also a poet with 15 published collections to his name and an artist whose work has been shown in seven countries over the last three decades. Please join me in welcoming Mr. William L. Fox. It's a pleasure to be back at the Autry, uh, one of my favorite museums in the world. Uh, it doesn't hurt that I used to live in Burbank just a few blocks away. So it's uh, kind of been my neighborhood museum for a long time. Uh, welcome to all of you. Uh, and my thanks to Zocalo, to Bill Deverell uh, for uh, calling me up and saying, do you want to do this? And I jumped at the chance and said, absolutely. And I know exactly the people I'd like to bring to talk about this this evening. So uh, two things. Uh, one is, no, I don't have swine flu, but I do have a cough. <laughs> um, it's uh, typical of me when I'm in Los Angeles that I will react that way. It's one reason I don't live here anymore, although I have for many years. Uh, so if you hear me coughing, and you will suffer my coughs along with me because of the mic, um, so don't panic. The other thing is, for the first time, I'm actually going to have to read my notes from my laptop, which I'm now booting up instead of doing it from a, a set of paper. So, And often I do these things sort of, uh, uh, without any notes whatsoever, but this evening it's a little more complicated because we have a panel. It's not just me getting up here and, and talking away. Um, it's nice, this little folder. It says Zocalo Remarks. It's also trying to bring up my Skype account at the same time. <laughs> the uh, 20th century anthropologist Gregory Bateson famously said, said one time, postulated, that all information is news of difference, which is something that I've used in my work for a long time. It's one reason I travel so much, is to go to different places and to be able to compare them. And it enables me to see how cognition, in fact, works in landscape, because I'm looking at how different people have done that in different environments, including Los Angeles and Las Vegas. I've now convinced Skype to go away. Um, Los Angeles and Las Vegas, being able to compare the two, will offer us a plethora of information because there are profound differences between the two, even as they are absolutely linked. One of the reasons it's so important, I think, to talk about these two cities and the relationships between the two is the fact that right now, about a quarter of the world's population lives in arid regions. By mid-century, I think sooner now, 50% of the world's population is going to live in, in desert regions or semi-desert regions. There are two reasons for that, one of which is, of course, we've got a lot of cities already in temperate places. We've used up uh, a lot of the good valleys uh, that are well watered, and the other is we're creating more desert. So uh, we were doing it simply because we were not using the land very wisely and wasting water. Now we're doing it as well because the climate is changing, in part forced by things that we've been doing. So uh, comparing these two cities isn't just a matter of intellectual curiosity for those of us who have lived and worked in Las Vegas and Los Angeles, as all of us have and written about it, but it's actually, I think, of wider import to the world. Um, our panelists are likewise alike and not. Uh, Nicole Huber uh, is an architect, associate professor, assistant professor, sorry, of architectural and urban design at the University of Washington. She's been a visiting scholar uh, at MIT 
And she's concerned not just with the urbanization um, of the American West and other places, um, such as the, her, the city of Berlin. Um, she's born in Frankfurt, Germany, and has, has worked up Berlin as an urban environment for many years. But she's also um, very curious about how the representation of the urbanization is made itself through different media, whether it's photography, uh, which she is a practitioner, uh, or cinematography. And she co-authored this last year, Urbanizing the Mojave Desert, uh, colon, Las Vegas, with Ralph Stern, who is sitting next to her. Uh, Ralph is likewise concerned with urbanization and its representation, but uh, he hails from Colorado, so he's a Western boy like me. Um, our third panelist, Libby Lumpkin, came to Nevada and California via Texas, via Texas and New Mexico. Uh, Libby has a doctorate in art history from the University of Mexico, was a founding curator of the Bellagio Gallery of Fine Art in Las Vegas, about more of which in a minute, uh, and she was director of the Las Vegas Art Museum. Uh, she served as director of museum studies program at Cal State Long Beach and has lectured and taught at Yale, Harvard, the University of California, and so forth. Um, she's published several books uh, and authored numerous essays on contemporary art and design, and she was a contributing editor of Art Issues that used to be published here, a wonderful magazine. It actually was my favorite, I think, art magazine in the country for many years before it stopped publishing. All of us have lived uh, and worked in these cities, um, Las Vegas and Los Angeles, um, and I'm going to make just a few quick comments up front, and then I'm going to let each of our panelists have a talk for about 10 minutes each, and then we'll answer uh, questions from the audience. And then, of course, we'll have a reception afterwards. So general questions while we're here, and if you have more things that you want to ask us in particular afterwards, we'll have an opportunity out in the plaza. Consider that both Los Angeles and Las Vegas were founded upon flowing waters now channeled almost out of sight. You all know about the Los Angeles River, of course, uh, which flows when it flows, not far from here, um, and the Las Vegas Wash, in fact, uh, which came out of a prodigious artesian spring uh, in the middle of Los, and, uh, Las Vegas, um, and which disappeared for a while, but now is back again in part because of urban runoff. Um, both were railroad towns before they metastasized via automobiles, uh, Los Angeles in the second day, decade, basically, of the 20th century, and starting then in Las Vegas almost 50 years later. Las Vegas Strip was founded by a L.A. City cop, ex-L.A. City cop, who basically named it after the Sunset Strip. What he was doing was building motor hotels, motels, uh, that were themed just as they were uh, on the Sunset Strip. And he was bringing designers and architects from Los Angeles to Las Vegas in order to do that. Um, consider the fact that America's first commercial theme park, if you will, I've always thought of as being Forest Lawn, which is here in Glendale not far away. Um, my great-grandmother is, is interred there with other family members, so I've actually spent some time looking around at that. And you know, the buildings there, which were direct copies of buildings in Italy, would look right at home with the Bellagio on the Las Vegas Strip. I started out a book about Los Angeles, Making Time, or no, the book about Los, Los, Las Vegas, I get them confused, In the Desert of Desire, comparing the construction of the Bellagio, a billion-dollar hotel facility, with the construction of the Getty, a billion-dollar museum complex, both done roughly in the same year. Um, and it's amazing how parallel the histories are. Uh, there are some radical differences between uh, Los Angeles and Las Vegas. I'll name just a few. Uh, for example, um, I've always thought that the, the brilliance of architecture in Los Angeles really arose from its residential architecture, not from its public buildings, which for the most part, for most of the 20th century anyway, were fairly bland. We have notable exceptions now, thankfully. It's the opposite in Las Vegas. Even the fanciest, most expensive homes tend to be really large tract houses. Um, and the public architecture, I mean, the library system has amazing buildings, you know, by Michael Graves and Antoine Predock, and then you, you have developments on the Strip that now feature buildings by Norman Foster and Daniel Liebskin and so forth. So almost the opposite that way. 
Uh, Los Angeles has wonderful public amenities, such as, um, let's say, the aquarium in Long Beach. Um, the only accredited zoological attraction in the state of Nevada is at a casino. It's at Mandalay Bay. It's a shark reef attraction. Um, <laughs> you know, we have wonderful art museums and, and general museums, generalist museums, of course, here uh, in Los Angeles. Um, and you see a failure of art museums uh, in Las Vegas. Um, the Las Vegas Art Museum being unable to sustain itself, the Guggenheim Las Vegas, despite decent attendance figures being closed down, when in fact you get the Bellagio Gallery of Fine Art, its doors are still open. You know? So it's a, it's a nice reversal of field, if you will, between private and public presentation of, of everything from art, animals, and sex um, on the Las Vegas Strip and Los Angeles. So. Look, the stories behind all these things are much more complicated than I'm letting on. Our, our, our panelists will sort of open these things up, and then, of course, questions from you will begin to open this up more as well afterwards. So, again, thank you very much to Zocalo, to the Autry, uh, to my buddy David Burton, who's out there. Um, and let's have a conversation. Nicole, let's... Okay. Yeah. Yeah, thanks a lot. Um, yeah, you already mentioned it briefly. What brought me to LA the first time in 2001 was actually the experience that we had, I must say, in Berlin. Um, I came to Berlin in the early 90s after the wall had come down and uh, the city was actively engaged with reconstructing its identity. So it was uh, under the topic of critical reconstruction. The effort was to understand what the city was about, what its history was, and how it could then generate a kind of European understanding of a city as a concentric city, referring uh, to its own history, recovering the traces of its own history. That's how it was essentially described. Um, we, uh, at that time, um, followed closely, also working at the university um, uh, in Berlin, we followed closely then on the rhetorics, um, as Bill already said, um, of the, uh, the uh, representation of the city uh, related to its um, master plan, right? So it was then basically uh, drawing the city, redrawing the city and its center in uh, an ideal way and trying to understand how the, uh, the structure of the city, how the streets, the corridor streets, the squares, the blocks, and the like had actually informed the city. And uh, this was informed and, and also approved by the city as the future of the city. Um, it was seen as a paradigmatic uh, example of European urbanism and was also then authored essentially by the city of Berlin. Of course, when you look more closely, then you also saw that it was not necessarily the kind of originality of Berlin, but the references were always then uh, to other cities, such as Paris, of course, right? And we had also long discussions with the, uh, the leaders of the municipalities um, uh, in, in Berlin in this regard. And, uh, and asked, you know, how is it then possible that the city uh, refers um, to its own histories and at the same time also clearly copies strategies of this other, of course, uh, a metropolitan area. And um, of, of that, out of that discussion, we also got the sense that there's a, a clear competition between the cities, between two big European cities and their futures. So how do they deal with their past? How do they deal and reconstruct their futures then following up on this? Um, in this search for the, the kind of paradigmatic European city, there was, of course, and always the kind of antidote to that city, which was then the quintessential American city, namely Los Angeles, which um, by accident is also the sister city of Berlin. And so it was always this kind of strange doppelganger, the kind of strange sister of, of Berlin as being then the, the city of sprawl, as being a, um, a, a parcelized and fragmented city, 
and um, and in this regard was also of course critiqued, right? And so we we also taught in this um, uh, at the University of the Arts uh, in this atmosphere of one competition um, trying always to uh, create identities or urban identities in relationship to other places. And I think this is really the crucial point that to understand where the identity and the uniqueness of one place is, is always in relationship to the otherness of others. And so it, it, it is essentially a, discussi a discussion between cities and their, uh, and their strategies to, to develop identities in this regard. Um, we then started to one question, of course, the, the typologies that the city of Berlin established um, and started cooperating also with institutions and in Los Angeles. And what we found really attractive here was the active engagement uh, to uh, issues of cult cultural transfer, right? So um, one, we are dealing, of course, with issues of migration. We are dealing with issues of um, cultural diversity and the ways in which uh, architecture, as well as language, as well as other forms of culture, uh, get translated from one into the other. And we are con continuously dealing with hybrids of cultures rather than pure original for, uh, forms. Um, one representational forms that we really also became enamored with is, I think, film noir, right, which is also this hybrid then of German expressionist film and then, of course, the, the American version of the, uh, of the movie, of the detective story. And we are very much, um, I would say, in agreement there also with Mike Davis and others who look at, the, at this urban history, at the history of the city in terms of um, narratives, stories, detective stories, and of course also conspiracies. Uh, in this regard, uh, we uh, then also turned to Las Vegas as one city that is always, of course, uh, uh, watched closely in relationship to Los Angeles and, um, and became interested in the formation of that city in terms of also different stories, different trajectories, and uh, different agendas um, of urban development. And perhaps Ralph wants to take it from here. Um, okay. I just want to say a couple more things about Ralph. Practicing architect, <laughs> teaches at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Um, and as someone who um, I think is able to frame the growth of an American city in a very unique way. Working with Nicole, they published this beautiful book um, about the urbanization of the Mojave and how Las Vegas actually interfaces with the desert. It's the kind of book that you wish you had about, uh, that everyone in America should have about their own hometown. It's one of those things where you just you look at that and you go, Oh, that's obvious, but how come I never saw that photograph before? Um, great. <laughs> um, thanks. Um, yeah, what, I think what Nicole was saying, I think what, what attracted us in many ways to Los Angeles, and this is then also the connection to the work that we were doing on Las Vegas, is that as opposed to, let's say, what was going on in Berlin at a particular moment in time, and Berlin is also a very complex city and they're very different groups and the like, but at least the program of looking at the city from the, the official city planner point of view was one that was concerned with constructing an ideal, an overarching ideal. And when we came to Los Angeles, there are a number of researchers, urban researchers here, that were very, very interested in looking at what was actually happening on the ground and looking at the complexity 
of urban organizations that didn't have anything to do necessarily with a kind of pre-configured ideal, with a kind of center city, with concentric uh, rings of growth. It had to do with a polycentric structure. It had to do with looking at hybrid forms of urban organization, which Nicole had mentioned. It also had very much to do with looking at the region as a whole. So it, in many ways, I think this sort of either Las Vegas or Los Angeles, uh, you know, in, in many ways, you could, one can reframe it, right, and say, okay, this is all part of a larger regional concern. There are problems that are common to the entire region, uh, issues of growth, issues of sprawl, issues of uh, limited resources, issues of migration. And so within that constellation, we became interested in Las Vegas, not so much for the stuff that was happening on the Strip, because in architectural circles, this was always the big sort of spectacular hurrah. But we became interested in simply what this kind of big, soupy, sort of more ill-defined thing called the Southern California region, the Mojave region, actually was about. And so when we were in California together, I guess for the first time in 2002, then um, there was this opportunity to, it was very funny, to go to Las Vegas. And the first thing we were told is, no, we, we weren't allowed to go to Las Vegas. I didn't want Las Vegas to impact, I mean, just in the circle of people that we were working with, the kind of issues that we were addressing in, I mean, we were out sort of to the east of Los Angeles, but it was still the greater metropolitan area. And we thought, well, we're gonna go to Las Vegas anyway. And so we went to Las Vegas and we were astounded for two reasons. One was the trip getting up to Las Vegas where we drove through Death Valley. And as we were informed afterwards, no Americans go through Death Valley in the summer, only Europeans, and that was true. We went to Zabriskie Point and we heard Japanese and French and met all our German friends there and there wasn't a single American. I mean, they knew better, right? And so it was, what? I mean, it was really very severe. And I remember just telling Nicole, whatever you do, don't lock the keys in the car. <laughs> Don't lock the keys in the car. And so in, then we went to Las Vegas, and we were astounded, of course, by the spectacle of the Strip, I mean, which, had, I mean, which is truly an astounding sight to see. And through various complicated connections, as you know, the world is a complicated place, sort of running and finally through Istanbul, um, I ended up in Las Vegas. And with this opportunity to address this, you know, this this idea of what is the urbanization of the Mojave Desert. And I had, I must say too, I was really torn. I mean, the offer was put on the table and there was sort of this very active and you know, engaged recruitment effort. And I, you know, and I was told also by colleagues, I sort of floated the idea tentatively, you know, what would you think if I went to Las Vegas? And you know, several of my colleagues, East Coast, you know, the United Kingdom, I mean, they said, are you crazy? I mean, if you go there, no one will ever take you seriously again. Don't go to Las Vegas, this is impossible. And then a very good friend of mine who knows me very, very well said, you love the desert, go to Las Vegas, you'll have a good time, you'll love the desert, right? And so that was finally the convincing argument and the stunning thing about it was when I got to Las Vegas were, was that, I mean, I finally went there because of the desert, you know, despite the Death Valley in the middle of summer and the 125 degree heat, uh, you know, I went there because of the desert, and when I got to Las Vegas, everybody said, desert? What desert? <laughs> this is Paris, this is Venice, this is, this is something else, right? And, um, and more tellingly and somewhat more disturbingly, I found, was that, you know, in, if you're 
teaching architectural students, this is about the future as well. This is about um, husbandry, this is about stewardship, this is about a concern for the environment, it's about the, the let's say, the concern of the following generation. And I had a very seminal conversation with one of my graduate students, and we were looking at a very large site in North Las Vegas, which UNLV had just purchased for its future expansion, and he was looking at a project there. And he had this kind of horror vacui. I mean, so he had, you know, I think 40 acres, and he covered it as quickly as he could in buildings and parking lots. You know, whatever it was, you know, it just, the desert had to go away. And I said, what are you doing anyway? You know, this is a very complex sort of structure of drainage systems, of washes, of plants. And he said, it's the desert. There's nothing there. It's only the desert. What's your problem? And so, you know, I sort of went, what? You know, and it set up then, I guess, the original framework for addressing what is the desert about and what is that process of urbanization and how does one interface with that very complex and, you know, ultimately very fragile, even though it is a very extreme environment, very fragile environment. And how does one begin to, let's say, get people who are not accustomed to seeing the sort of beauty and complexity of that to really understand that. And Las Vegas in that regard is a very interesting place. It's a very complex place. I think it is governed unlike Los Angeles. I think it is still very much a Wild West kind of place. It's very concerned, interested in extractive industries. So if silver and gold were big in the 19th century and <coughs> gold is coming back now. In fact, I got an email from one of my students saying, we have GIS, we have metal detectors, we have good maps, and gold is $1,000 an ounce, you know? <laughs> so uh, they're out there prospecting again, right? But it seemed like real estate development and the scale of real estate development as an extractive industry is something that really marked Las Vegas. And what makes Las Vegas, we were talking about how the desert earlier, how the desert does not obscure a lot of complex processes that are obscured perhaps in a much more tree-covered environment where if you dig a big hole and, you know, and that hole is really a nasty thing that shouldn't be there, if you wait a few years in most environments, it'll be covered with vines, trees will go, grow, it'll essentially be hidden. That's not the case in the desert. If you put in a road, even if it's a very provisional road, um, 100 years later, that road will still be absolutely clearly demarcated through the desert. And that's something that became of real concern, is sort of tracking those sorts of development issues in relation to an environment that seems, and this is an interesting question in relation to cultural issues, in relation to the production of culture, that seems to wish fundamentally in many ways that it was really someplace else. And in doing that, you know, there is this kind of constant effort at displacement. So, you know, we saw over and over again this, I mean, it's the naming of the streets, it's the naming of the development. So Italian is really big and home ownership, I mean, to live in an apartment in Las Vegas is something that you shouldn't really do. And when I first moved to Las Vegas, I thought, you know, this is great, you know, because, I mean, I can really live in a kind of edge environment. So I remember one of my colleagues saying to me, where are you gonna live, you know, and I said, I think I'm going to get a van and live in the parking lot. <laughs> they said, no, 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 it'll never work, it's too hot. And then I said, well, 
you know, if any one time in one's life one lives in a trailer, then Las Vegas would be the great place to live in a trailer. And I thought I'd get one for my books and one for myself, and I get a couple of junkers and sort of decorate the front yard with junked cars. And it wasn't possible. I mean, even, even as a kind of strange ideal, you know, if you only live once, you have to do some of these things, right? Because um, Las Vegas was very rapidly shutting down trailer parks. And they were, these, a lot of these trailer parks, a lot of the life of Las Vegas of the 1950s and 60s and 70s, uh, very stable, socially integrated environments. I mean, people who'd lived in these trailer parks for 30 years, they were being closed down because of you know, large money coming in. Real estate values had gone through the roof. <coughs> Elderly individuals were being displaced. We heard a lot about you know, people in their 70s and 80s in severe stress who, couldn't, who didn't survive, I mean, who literally died because they couldn't in, you know, sort of enable yet one more transition. It was really tragic in many ways. And all of these things were being sort of displaced, dissolved, uh, and reconfigured uh, in the name of some kind of dream world. Part of that dream world was, of course, you know, imposed by Hollywood. So there was a lot of Hollywood money coming in, a lot of Ocean's Eleven. Um, you know, Brad Pitt and George Clooney also had their interests in uh, a development project called Las Ramblas, I believe. So now we were in Barcelona, right? We were certainly not in the Mojave. Uh, and <laughs> uh, always someplace else at any rate. And um, it just then became, I think, ever more of an interest then to us to really document what that collision was between a sort of desert environment and a cultural environment. And I don't think in many ways that the architectural community and the cultural community in Las Vegas has answers that are really, just formulated this way, worthy of their environment as of yet. And I think Los Angeles does. And I think that Phoenix even clearly does. The first time we went to Phoenix, we were really, really impressed. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on in Phoenix. There's a lot of bad stuff going on in Phoenix, too. But there is a lot of really interesting architecture. And for us, a lot of these, these things that are happening on the Strip, even though it is public space, it is still, uh, it doesn't create a public realm. I mean, finally, I mean, it's, it's not really public space. It's private space. So it functions as a kind of quasi sort of public entity. But it hasn't yet, I think, I would just leave it at that at this point. The cultural development there has not yet come up on a level, I think, that's, that's appropriate to the environment that it's in. I would agree with that. <laughs> um, so, okay, I'm all over the place now. I'm not sure where to start. I was gonna try to segue right out of you. Uh, but basically, I think we're comparing the two cities. Uh, LA and Las Vegas. So I'm just going to say that culturally speaking, and I've been in the cultural world of Las Vegas for 20 years now, uh, we are a suburb of Los Angeles and think of ourselves that way and must think of ourselves that way to have any culture in our lives whatsoever, um, pretty much. Um, and uh, I mean, our, our mayor, you know, I've been going back and forth in the press a little bit. You know, the Las Vegas Art Museum, which I ran for three and a half years, closed in the wake of the uh, economy. It was a very dis big disappointment. Uh, but uh, the mayor announced that people want to go see art. They can just go to L.A. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Okay. <laughs> okay. So Vegas and Los Angeles have a lot in common. Uh, first of all, and you make a very good point, uh, talking about how Vegas isn't into the desert. You know what I'm saying. 
uh, it does not, for the most part, uh, pay attention to the desert. I mean, uh, in the earliest brochures, uh, when Vegas first presented itself as a tourist destination, uh, they did issue um, uh, pamphlets about the Mount Charleston and, and the, the Red Rock and things like that. Now they don't even bother. I mean, you can find uh, that advertised in the kiosks when you get there, and you can take a, a, a uh, helicopter to the Grand Canyon. Uh, but it isn't a big part of the urban life or the cultural center of the town, even though we have Michael Heiser out in the desert, who's been out there for 30 years now. It's getting hot, too hot for him, I think, out there. Uh, but um, building the city. Uh, and of course, we're home to double negative, too. So there's some really great things to see in the desert that are artistic and also uh, Red Rock and Valley of Fire and things like that. Uh, but you know, the thing that always struck me about Los Angeles is that it doesn't really embrace the sea. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> when you think of uh, East Coast towns and it's the harbor and all this culture of fish, I don't know if anybody, I don't know anybody that goes fishing, uh, but um, you know, so I, I think there's some similarity there too. And of course, both Vegas and uh, Los Angeles were originally seen as part of the Eden, uh, and but they're both desert communities, and um, so they created the Eden. Of course, Los Angeles embraces nature in a way that Vegas completely ignores nature. <laughs> uh, but again, I mean, it's not an entirely, you know, I mean, it is an artificial nature in uh, Los Angeles, too. You have to understand palm trees are not native to the city. Um, we also have some differences in the development of our populations. Uh, Las Vegas is fairly unique in, this, in being a southwestern city uh, that did not grow with a significant Hispanic population. When I arrived there in 1990, uh, there was a very, very uh, small Hispanic population, and those Hispanics who were there were Cuban refugees from when Castro shut down uh, the casinos in um, Cuba. Uh, that changed with the building boom. Uh, the uh, the uh, Mexicans came over the border to help build the city. Now they're going the other way, if it gives you any idea of just how bad the economy is uh, when you're going back to Mexico. Um, so, so, yeah. Uh, so basically, uh, you know, and we have a much more ingrained mob culture, which uh, everyone says is gone, but it did form the basis of the city and is still there in the old families and things like that. I mean, there's not a mob there anymore, trust me. Uh, and, uh, you know, everybody plays by the rules. As Steve Wynn once told me, he said, why would I want to do that when I can make so much money the regular way? Uh, but, um, so basically it was founded with Italians, Jews, and uh, Cubans. Uh, uh, but we also um, have deep roots in terms of our architecture, and I think one of the great architects that, who has been recognized in a couple of books in just the last few years, uh, but has been overlooked so much as Wayne McAllister, who designed Bun Boys, you know, the old uh, Bun Boys in the 30s, late 30s, 40s, and 50s. He um, designed so much of the entertainment uh, architecture here in Las Vegas and, and Simon's drive-in uh, and other drive-in chains that he designed, I think, are true masterpieces. He also designed, I would say, the majority of the great early um, uh, casinos in, um, in Las Vegas, the Sands, the Desert Inn. Um, he actually started with a hacienda style that he exploited here and brought there to the El Cortez and the El Rancho uh, and then moved into his 
I don't know what that was, modernist phase <laughs> of uh, neon and um, when he created his true masterpieces. Uh, but what Las Vegas doesn't have from the early days is uh, Richard Neutra, just not spectacular enough for us and not about um, you know, leisure architecture enough. And of course now uh, we have uh, our own Frank Gehry building uh, uh, nearing completion and it's gonna be a really great building uh, in downtown Las Vegas. It's a insti health institute dedicated to uh, brain uh, illnesses. Um, and speaking from the cultural side, there's something really profound that we do share, and that is the character of the supporters of the arts. Um, you know, I have to tell you a funny story because uh, we were really in growth mode when I was at the Las Vegas Art Museum and planning to build a new facility. <clears throat> and uh, so uh, then, uh, you know, they opened the new Eli Broad addition to the LACMA campus here, and so I thought, uh, I was. A, happy to be invited and um, so I decided to attend uh, primarily so I could see how to do uh, a, uh, a proper building opening so when I opened the new Las Vegas Art Museum I would know how to do it and I didn't want to uh, do anything outrageous because Vegas parties can be kind of wild and um, I wanted to make sure I could say to my board they did, had, did it like this at LACMA. Well, that was the wildest party I'd ever seen. I mean, it, it was more Vegas. They had girly girls in clear uh, basketballs rolling around. Uh, they had people up on stealth. They had movie stars with too much bosom. I mean, it was just, uh, it was just more Vegas than Vegas. Uh, so basically, uh, you know, one of the things you have to understand when you're in the world of culture is that so much depends on who your supporters are, and I would say there's a you know the strong Hollywood base here, and we have the strong entertainment base there. So it's same kind of people, and frankly, uh, you've had some of the same problems. Now you have much older and much much better institutions. In fact, we don't have an art museum in Las Vegas, uh, so and probably not likely to have one anytime soon. Uh, but um, um, so uh, but you know, Mocha was uh, just on the brink. Uh, at the same time that we actually were on the brink and then we went down and uh, Eli Broad stepped in and saved Mocha. Uh, but uh, y you have a lot of the same problems here and believe me, the grousing I hear from my friends that run museums here <laughs> sounds very familiar. Okay. Um, you also, um, uh, in terms of architecture, is really interesting because a lot of uh, Vegas comes from Miami as well, so we get a lot of Morris Lapidus uh, influence into uh, Vegas architecture, but there's a real difference here because obviously we ha are, you know, have been primarily a one-industry town. You're a diversified metropolis, and your city has grown more organically uh, than Las Vegas has. Um, and also, um, you have, uh, you know, our phases. You know, ha you had the modernist, you know, constructivist-based architecture, and we did, we did it. To bigger and more spectacular, uh, but we skipped over you know all the brutalism and all those ugly buildings that got built in the 80s and uh, late 70s and 80s, and um, then uh, we basically for the 1990s much of the inspiration comes from Disneyland. Now you've kept your Disneyland segregated; ours is in the middle of town, so that's a real difference. Of course, now we're going to high architecture, and like I say. We get a Frank Gehry, and then the City Center Project with Daniel Liebskin, Norman Foster, Cesar Pelli. This is a big lineup of names, and they're all grouped there. It's like, you want high architecture? Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> We're going to give you high architecture. And that's set to open very soon as well. Uh, but, uh, but again, 
Um, we are now, you know, I think really the only reason Vegas is embracing uh, high architecture on the Strip, now the Frank Gehry is our cultural uh, building downtown, uh, but um, is because we have returned, uh, or, or rather we can embrace just as we did Wayne McAllister um, and modernist architecture, which we made more spectacular, uh, because high architecture has become more sculptural and more alluring and just sexier uh, than it had been for many years before. And uh, we are definitely into, to, there's my five minute sign. Okay, so, uh, you know, I will just say that uh, I think you made the point too that Las Vegas is uh, influencing the world and then we see that, we're seeing that in Dubai, Macau, uh, the Kotai Strip that's under development uh, and uh, basically in Times Square. So um, we're bleeding out and um, um, we'll see whether that's good or bad. Great, Libby, thank you. Yeah, and Ralph and Nicole, terrific, thanks. I think, Ralph, please, yeah. I think, I mean, you know, I mean, Libby has raised some really interesting points, and I think one of the things that, I mean, one of the reasons, you know, I had mentioned the kind of interventions, I mean, the trailer parks and all of that, is because of the ideal, I think, that Las Vegas represented, uh, certainly to you know, the architectural historians and critics, uh, Robert Venturi and Denise Scott Brown, who, I mean, Denise was in Los, in Los Angeles in the 1960s and went up to Las Vegas and sort of uh, made the real point of pushing Las Vegas for its architectural potential. But the notion at that point in time was that it was a democratic and inclusivist um, social organization. And that it really did allow for um, a kind of realization of the American dream uh, without you know, very complex, let's say, class structures or social divisions okay. and the like. And I think in many ways that that survived for a certain amount of time, that people could come to Las Vegas. It is known as a blue-collar town. It is known as the uh, Detroit of the Sun Belt in the good sense, right? I mean, sort of that everybody could go, everybody could get a job, uh, regardless of what a kind of social background or educational background one had, one could live well. Uh, but it seemed that also at this point in time, and this is a kind of interesting question, that because of the real influx of people and because of the boom in real estate prices and the like, that those sort of, let's say, more simple existences, right, that were represented by smaller houses, by the houses of the 1950s and 1960s and 1970s and by trailer parks and the like, really got pushed aside by ever larger, ever more inflated, uh, what you had mentioned at the beginning, mm -hmm. Bill, uh, you know, the real sort of, you know, grand uh, personal sort of extravagances. And that is not sustainable socially, it's not sustainable environmentally. No, you're and we're seeing the result right. of that right now. Absolutely right. We had a housing bubble, like you had the, we share a housing <coughs> bubble, um, and we had a housing bust. However, during that period, I mean, the trailer people and all of those were just in a terrible shape. In fact, City Center bought a great deal of land near Gene, Nevada, in order to put housing to house people that are going to work uh, in City Center and truck them in every morning because uh, uh, the common person had just been uh, priced out of it. But essentially, I think your point about being very democratic structured towns. I think we share that actually. I mean, in, in Las Vegas, it is fundamental because 
you know, our society, I mean, you know, okay, let me just put it this way. At the country club, you're gonna sit next to maybe Don King or, or Latoya Jackson with her snake, uh, and it's just not the same tiered structures that you see on the East Coast. Uh, but also, uh, fundamentally, the premise of Las Vegas is that um, status isn't based on money because that can change overnight. You can pull a lever and be the richest person in town the next day. Now that doesn't happen often enough, uh, but, uh, but that is the premise. Uh, so it is a completely uh, flatline uh, social hierarchy uh, in that town. And I think actually uh, uh, Las Vegas is, I mean uh, Los Angeles is very much that way. I mean you can come here, you can get into Hollywood, you can become a famous movie actor and, and be rich, you know, you can do things like that. So I think there is a, a, a shared sense there. Equality of opportunity in a funny way, yeah. yeah. We should probably go to the audience, yeah. Uh, thank you, my name's Brian Metcalf. Um, I was curious about Las Vegas. I, I think in many cities, cultural elites, uh, you know, wealthy families who uh, civic leaders were able to uh, initiate uh, some kind of uh, galvanizing people into cultural events, like, for example, the symphony orchestra, or like you talked about in museums. Who are those individuals in Las Vegas who might be pushing Las Vegas towards the future that could include, let's say, a major symphony orchestras, uh, opera companies, dance companies, the kinds of things that Los Angeles didn't really get until much later than, say, the Well, you know, frankly, the people who are pushing it uh, are people like me. I mean, the Performing Arts Center was basically, uh, is being, is, which is going up. There's a $495 million Performing Arts Center uh, that keeps saying they're going to break ground any day now. You know, in this economy, it's pretty tough. I mean, they really, you know, took a hit like everybody else. Uh, but they have considerable funds, and that will go forward. Uh, but, you know, it's generally people, frankly, like me. And then we go get uh, the roundup. Uh, the people. And one of the problems in Las Vegas is that the people at the top um, of the food chain there, uh, they're just, there's a few of them and they get hit from every direction, uh, and especially lately. Uh, so, uh, and it never was like this before. Um, in fact, I think eight years ago, there had never been a capital campaign of any kind in Las Vegas, Nevada, if you can imagine that. Uh, then the university started a $500 million one, and then the Performing Arts Center, and I, you know, so, uh, uh, you know, every, the rich were getting hit hard from uh, all sides. Uh, but it's, you know, it's the people at the resort uh, people, generally. Yeah, one, one of the first things that was started in Las Vegas was Nevada Ballet Theater. And um, this was a, a, a nonprofit um, contemporary repertory, repertoire company uh, for dance. And it was started because um, Kel Houses, who owned the Union Plaza Hotel in downtown Las Vegas, fell in love with a dancer um, who actually had gone to school at UCLA, uh, Nancy Housels, gone to school at UCLA, and she had gotten picked up uh, by a, a male dancer to do an adagio act uh, for the Folies Bergeres uh, in France and Paris, and then went on, to, went on to do the Ed Sullivan Show and a bunch of other things. When the Tropicana Hotel decided they wanted to bring the Follies to Las Vegas, um, she came with her partner as an act. Uh, her partner was abusive. Kel um, was then also involved with the Tropicana Hotel, um, fired her so he could marry her, and then said, and so what would you like to do? And she said, I really want to start a legitimate dance company for all the dancers in Las Vegas, many of whom were classically trained ballerinas before they came to town. And that became a very credible nonprofit. I mean, this is a, a theater that's funded by the National Endowment for the Arts and so forth. So 
Uh, that was up and going in the late 60s, early 70s with the great influx of public money that came from the National Endowment for the Arts and the establishment of state arts councils, that began to be an encouragement to people in Las Vegas as well as in Reno. The relationship between the two cities is a little bit like San Francisco and Los Angeles. There's that kind of snootiness and that sort of defensiveness, and then the town down south gets bigger, and then all these kinds of dynamics that are very similar. In any case, um, that started a lot of nonprofit organizations um, uh, in Las Vegas. So there was a symphony uh, with a wonderful uh, Ukrainian conductor, Virko Bali, um, so there were some, some things that the, the primary families in town could get behind, including the Greenspans and so mm -hmm. forth, who are newspaper owners and, and such. So it's, it's been varied, but it's been a great struggle. The performing arts, I think, has done better than the visual arts in that city. Hello, uh, yes. <laughs> so, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting history, but it's a fairly recent and very quick one, yeah. Hello, I'm Jackie Morrison, and I go to Las Vegas often. And um, I was, I wanted to know where the location is of the Gary Building and how it compares with Disney Hall. Um, it's very different from Disney Hall. It's downtown. There's a 61-acre plot that the city bought from Pacific Railroad, uh, and so that's a whole redevelopment area. Uh, it's if you know the World Market Center, the big furniture mart that is will ultimately be 12 million square feet, but in its first year with just a million square feet, put San Francisco's furniture mart out of business. Uh, so it's, it marks one side of it next to the freeway, and then the 61 acres go along in front of it there. And the Frank Gehry building serves as kind of the gateway building. So it is sitting in front, of, it's a small building, it's 60,000 square feet, and it's sitting in front of this humongous World Market Center uh, that, uh, you know, it's just this huge wall of stuff, and it will get huger. Uh, it is a very uh, different design from, uh, I, there's no precedent for that really in his repertoire. Uh, so it's going to be a really beautiful building. It has a front part that cascades down like this, um, and then the offices and, and the back part. So it's, it's smaller than Disney, and, but I think it's um, equally a sculptural, and uh, I, I think uh, Frank regards it as a, a, a really important work in his uh, group of uh, buildings. Well, this may not be appropriate given your discussion, but you had a statistic that I found almost terrifying, the, the number of, the, the shift of population to desert areas mm -hmm. and the whole issue of water mm -hmm. and how does it fit into these mm -hmm. discussions because that seems to me rather crucial. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, huh? yeah. Issa K. Mexen. Uh-huh. Well, thank you. I mean, yeah. look, we share the Colorado River between the two cities, mm -hmm. if you will. Um, we're drawing water from Wyoming and Colorado. The Colorado River is a, it, it's funny to call it a river. It's a, basically an industrial artifact that consists of a series of reservoirs um, out of which water is transferred into other basins. So, you know, the Colorado River comes down the west side of the Rockies and, and water is taken over to the east side of the Rockies to Denver, for example, out of the, the watershed that's feeding that river, which is supposed to flow, you know, uh, clear to the Gulf of California. It doesn't make it really anymore. So um, it's a river that was oversubscribed when they, in the early part of the 20th century, when they f figured out what they thought was the average flow of the Colorado River that was going to have to sustain Phoenix and Las Vegas and Los Angeles and so forth. Um, they were very wet years, and of course, they're not average, and not only that, things are getting drier just overall in this part of the world. So um, it's going to be tough. I mean, at some point, 
Well, we're starting to see conservation now taken more seriously here. I mean, I know that there are watering restrictions and so forth going into effect. I find it very peculiar, by the way, that, that all Los Angelinos are supposed to water on the same two days of the week. You know, most cities, they alternate them. If you live on an odd street address, you Tuesday and Thursday, even address Wednesday and Friday. You know. Anyway, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with the water pressure. But this is a problem that's happening around the world. <laughs> it's happening around the world. You find these enormous transfers of water out of the, out of the basins. Um, John Wesley Powell, when he floated down to Colorado in the 19th century, said, don't transfer water out of, this, out of this basin to somewhere else. You need to leave it where it is and use it where it is. And if you don't have enough too bad, just don't build there. It's advice that we ignored completely. Um, and now that our great cities of the, of the American Southwest are going to pay the price. They're doing the same thing with the Nile in Egypt. They're pumping the water out of the, out of the river. It no longer really feeds into the Mediterranean the way it should, so it's going to affect that's a long story. But uh, Las Vegas and, and Los Angeles, to some degree, to me, are indicator cities for the problems that the rest of the world's going to have. Yes, I mean, we both steal water. Right. You know? <laughs> no, I think that, that the point you're raising is really an important one. And we also, we looked at this, uh, the culture of basically importing landscapes, right? I mean, where you have the desert, which is not taken seriously, or which is seen as that canvas onto which you can project whatever ideal city you want, you, you are wishing for, you're desiring, right? And then you import, then also, of course, vegetation that is not really local, a local one. Um, and this, this understanding, coming back to, um, I would say, yeah, cognitive patterns, right, or ways in which you, you see or understand landscape, uh, it, what really struck us is, is the kind of the, the dismissal or the, the not acknowledging the environment that you actually live in and projecting then what you already know, what you have seen as ideal landscapes from elsewhere. And the consequences that we are seeing is, yes, I mean, that there is a possibility that is now um, developed that Lake Mead will be running dry, there's a 50% possibility um, in 2021, right? And we are seeing now with climate change certainly uh, really serious changes in, in the environment. And there is uh, an enormous struggle also from the city of uh, Las Vegas to support um, uh, essentially uh, the saving of, of water and these resources. Um, but you also see initiatives that are very clearly linked also to our strategies that Los Angeles has come up with with regards to importing water from the Owens Valley. And now there are initiatives to develop pipelines into the northern part of Nevada, which might lead to similar consequences, right? So I think in terms of the, one, the understanding of an environment, the ways in which you, you urbanize this environment, uh, and the, the patterns of lifestyle are certainly um, prominent issues. Yeah, and I, I would just add to that, that um, on a positive note, that our water district company has engaged in a, a really aggressive campaign. They pay a substantial sum to you if you go dry with the, uh, the landscape in your yard, uh, if you get rid of your grass, and I predict that that will be coming to your, to your, to your town very soon. Uh, that, um, you know, you'll stop, you know, and more and more you see rocks instead of grass in people's yards. It's a dollar a square foot they'll pay you for every, every square right. foot of lawn you yeah. take out. It's but been a very, very effective program. But, but there's still, I think, the, I mean, I think the importance of the question and the importance of the issue can't be emphasized enough because it comes back to also a questioning of, you know, this notion of growth for growth's sake. And also the questions then of, of density, densification. Uh, also a question finally of the, uh, the scale of lifestyle that one wants. So 
you know, there are maps of the Las Vegas Valley that identify how many pools per person in each zip code. And there are areas that, you know, just have one swimming pool for 10 people or less, you know, for an entire uh, zip code. And this has, again, this comes back to the issue of, you know, what type of, um, you know, what type of urbanization is possible within an extreme climate. And the notion of continually displacing or pretend, you know, displacing oneself to another location, pretending that one isn't in the desert is something that I think is, one doesn't even really need to well, talk long term anymore. It's just simply, you know, in the next decade or two, I think those have, limits will there, be reached. There needed to be a lot of mindset changes because just like six years ago, when, well, no, it's been longer than that, uh, in the late 90s, uh, when Steve Wynn still owned the Gold Nugget downtown, mm -hmm. Uh, he had a plan to dig up all the downtown streets and make them into canals. Uh, but that got shot down uh, by water conservationists, so. <laughs> Do we have another question? Yes. Uh, a brief one. Uh, uh, every so often for the last uh, couple of decades, I've, I've heard about uh, mention of a bullet train between here and uh, uh, Las Vegas, and only in the last few weeks I've heard that it's uh, San Francisco that's now going to win out on that. Is, there a, is it dead now, the one to Las Vegas? Um, it was part of the Obama, I mean, of the pork package, you know, that came out I don't mean to call it that, but uh, it was one of those pork icons that uh, caught national attention. Uh, the elevated uh, electric, I forget the name of it, but maglev, maglev right. uh, train has been on the planning, in the planning stage out of Las Vegas for many, many years. Uh, and the plan as it stands now uh, is for the train to go from the strip to Disneyland. Um, so uh, somehow, much of the nation did not really understand the need for this. Now, I frankly think it's a great idea. It would make my life so much better. If, it, if, it were, if they would just take it to Santa Monica, it would actually make my life even that much more better. Uh, but no, I, I think, you know, it's a big straw, you know, that Vegas wants to put into California and suck out people. Of course. Let's do it. <laughs> I, for it. There, there are, um, I mean, maybe I can add something to that. I mean, there are some, uh, uh, some very interesting, again, pressures in relation to, you know, what kind of development in the Las Vegas Valley and how extensive will that be. So one of the things that's happening right now is that, I mean, everything is sort of topsy-turvy because of the recession and so, you know, airport numbers are declining instead of rising, at least at this point in time. But basically, at least as of a couple of years ago, the projections were that McCarran International Airport, they're going to build a new terminal, but they're going to be maxed out in terms of their capacity in the next few years. So there is the discussion, of course, about building, and property has been purchased and plans are in the works, for building a new airport south of Las Vegas, uh, close to mm -hmm. Gene, right? Mm -hmm. So there are several issues there already. I mean, how do people get in from that airport into the city? Uh, this intersects the issue of the monorail and to what extent is the monorail within the city effective at all? And is it not effective simply because it's not connecting enough points? And does one extend then the monorail to McCarran? Might one ultimately extend something like that to the south and the like? 
Of course, what's driving that in large part are the large numbers of flights also to California, many of which come to Los Angeles. And the question is, you know, what is more effective ultimately? Is it a train? Is it, you know, more lanes on I-15? Is it a new airport? How does that get reconfigured? So the maglev is one solution. Of course, historically there was a train, and that was shut down finally in the mid-1990s, if I'm mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. yeah. And now there's another proposal on the table, though, that would follow the I-15 corridor and not run to Anaheim, but mm -hmm. run somewhere Ill else into the greater Los Angeles metropolitan area uh, that would be simply a high-speed train. So it's not quite as fast as a maglev, uh, not quite as illustrious in terms of its technology, let's say its technology, uh, but much less expensive. But in that regard, it's also the question again of, you know, I, I can just underscore it, the matter of resources and then connecting that ultimately to, you know, West Coast transportation, connecting ultimately that kind of configuration to a Phoenix-Tucson corridor because that's another big transportation nexus that's entirely dependent upon now either, you know, air travel or, you know, private transportation. So at some point in time, I think that that will. I mean, I, I mean, honestly, I agree. I think it's a good thing. It is so expensive, eight plus billion dollars. Uh, it's not going to happen in this round. But I think a conventional train right. is just fine. You know, if it just goes straight, and you know, big party train, you know, it's great. <laughs> well, let's let's thank our panelists. Thank you very much. And thank you all for coming. Thank you so much. We'll see you outside.